0: The workers were so stressed that one of them said to me that working for the DOJ and the local prisons um, seemed more compelling because the pay was better and the job was less stressful.
1: Mm -hmm. It was
0: how bad it got.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And our cultural programming um, effectively consisted of one social justice coordinator who, you know, at that time there were no centers on campus. This person had to coordinate all of social justice for an Mm -hmm. entire so these, you know, this is what tolerable suboptimization looks like. It's happening around the country, but it's happening more heavily on campuses that have higher
1: concentrations of marginalized students. Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Today we're talking about the new book, Broke: The Racial Consequences of Underfunding Public Universities with the Two Authors. Laura Hamilton, and Kelly Nielsen. This book explores the dynamics, particularly in California's UC system, but has broad implications for all institutions of higher education. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and online learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find details about this episode or browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. This episode is brought to you by LeaderShape. Go to leadershape.org to learn how they can work with you to create a just, caring, and thriving world. Today's episode is also sponsored by EverFi, the trusted partner for 1,500 colleges and universities. EverFi is the standard of care for student safety and well-being with the results to prove it. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, his. I'm a speaker, consultant, and coach. You can find out more about me at keithedwards.com. I'm broadcasting from Minneapolis, Minnesota, at the intersections of the ancestral homelands of the Dakota and the Ojibwe peoples. Let's get to our conversation today. I'm so grateful to have both of you here uh, joining us. Let's just begin with some introductions. Uh, Laura, I think we'll start with you. Tell us a little bit about you, and then we'll uh, get into more about the book and what you've learned and what we can all learn. Absolutely. Uh,
0: Thanks for having me. I'm Laura Hamilton. Uh, My pronouns are she, her, hers. I'm a professor of sociology at the University of California, Merced. And for me, this book has been a long time coming. When I accepted a tenure track position at my university over a decade ago, I started to get interested in the topic, um, particularly because of the wonderful students, who really demanded scholarship that recognized the rich racial and ethnic tapestry of the US, which was really obvious in California. And I started to become really curious about the ways that my students limited access to resources might be linked to the student body racial composition.
1: Mm -hmm. Awesome. I think many in our audience as student affairs folks uh, really glad to hear that this generated from the students and their interest and their nudging and their pushing. Wonderful. Kelly, tell us a little bit more about you.
2: Yeah, thanks. It's great to be here. Um, I'm Kelly Nielsen. My pronouns are he, him, his. Um, I came to this topic. I had written a dissertation about community college students in um, Riverside, California. And uh, when I was sort of wrapping up my dissertation and Laura was starting this project, she needed someone who could take on the bulk of the research in the Riverside area at UCR, uh, and it was it was just perfect timing, uh, mm. super fortuitous, and and I knew the region, um, I knew a lot about um, the campus, um, I knew a lot about the students in the area, but it was really a, just a great opportunity to go more into actually how the organization works. Um, my work up to that point had really focused on students and their experiences. And um, through this project, I think we really got to look at the way a university um, functions, what a university means, um, not just to students, but to um, the state and to um, the higher ed system as a whole. And so it was just this, um, great opportunity to sort of take a, a, the, the sort of knowledge the special knowledge I had and, and really expand it so mm-hmm. um, that's what brought me to this project
1: mm-hmm. and you're no longer in California right
2: no I am so I left California for a bit um, I went to Cornell for a couple of years in upstate New York um, did some work in the area of teaching and learning and now I'm uh, back and uh, in California and, and, and continuing on
1: oh wonderful wonderful well, let's jump into the book. Uh, a wonderful read. I, I love how you've, you've done all of this research, but it doesn't read like a dissertation. It reads more like a journalist would write about what's going on with little stories and information informed by that. So it's really uh, was, was lovely to read. Give us an overview of the book and the implications for higher ed. Uh, maybe we'll begin, Kelly, with you. Um, you all discuss new universities. What are new universities and how did they come into existence? Sure. Thanks. Yeah. So
2: we really started with two, I guess, broad um, areas or or sort of uh, phenomena in higher ed that that struck us. And one is this persistent racial segregation. So when we looked um, not just at the UC system, but through higher education as a whole, you see a persistent segregation um, by race across institutions and institutions type. So this was Um, something that really struck us. And we wanted to understand why does this persist? When we look back at the efforts to desegregate higher education and to um, produce a less segregated higher education system, um, what we found was that at this moment, you get this um, reaction this conservative reaction to withdraw public funding from public higher education and to impose the costs of public higher education onto students and their families and into the private sector. And so you get this process called austerity, right? Which is the sort of willful deflation or willing deflation of of public spending on public goods, right? So these two processes really um, for us formed the nexus of the book where racial segregation and public funding really came together. And that withdrawal of public funding really reinforced this racial segregation in higher education. And what we saw is that there were these organizations that had begun to emerge that we have come to call new universities that decided or realized that in order to survive in a a very austere, context where austerity has really um, made running a public institution very difficult, that it was now possible to turn to those students who had been historically excluded from higher education in order to get the revenues to not only survive, but to really thrive. And even to become, in a sense, the model of the future of higher education. And this was really made possible by the fact that you had a much larger, um, well-educated population of students who had been formally excluded in the past or informally excluded who could now be drawn into higher education. And then you had um, this cultural turn that made diversity in higher higher education organizations a a real virtue. right? And so they could draw in these students and now try to rely on this cultural cachet for one and this financial um, benefit on the other to um, create a sort of new type of higher ed institution that could really challenge these uh, sort of uh, old elite structures or hierarchies of higher education. So these are really new models of how to do higher education um, that we were seeing start to emerge and in the case of the book, um, two universities, UC Riverside on the one hand and UC Merced on the other, that were um, doing it, uh, you could say, exceptionally well.
1: Mm, Great, great. I I love that grounding. Uh, Laura, can you tell us a little bit more about the the resource disparities and what you saw from some of these new universities?
0: Yeah, we use the University of California system as a case study to understand Mm -hmm. how race and resource allocation are linked um, in our current post-secondary system. But UC is sort of like a best or better case scenario in the sense that it's been widely recognized as a mobility machine. The nine undergraduate serving campuses are all research universities and have that backing. Um, And the state has really had a historical commitment to serving racially and economically marginalized students. So what we describe in the book um, and the resources that are dispersed among the UCs is um, really sort of like the tip of the iceberg. Um, I would even say in California, you could compare any of the UCs to the CSU campuses, the mm-hmm. California State University campuses, which are regional campuses. And you also see disparities there too that are also linked to race. Um, but when you have race, racial segregation, and you have austerity together, you start to see particular types of patterns. So I'll give you those patterns in the UC, but again, you can generalize these. Um, What you see is that organizational resources, money, material resources, staff, faculty, that students need to succeed are very much connected to the race and class composition of the student body. We focused on UC Merced, where I work in UC Riverside, where Kelly did a lot of his research. Um, And these two campuses proportional to their size really do the lion's share of work with marginalized student populations for the University of California system. They're both majority Latinx, they're both majority low income, they're both first generation student bodies. Mm -hmm. Yet the campus is very, quite wildly in their access to um, financial support. The UCs in general are unusual in that the state um, sends the same amount of money per undergraduate student. So we're not looking at undergraduate student disparities although there are a lot of disparities in graduate funding because Mm -hmm. the other campuses have more graduate students. Um, that's sort of unusual as well. Many states actually fund, um, give less state appropriations to students that are attending schools where there are larger larger numbers of Black and Latinx students. Mm -hmm. Um, Literally, they receive less on the dollar than white students at more affluent universities. But in the UC um, and also everywhere else, there is a growing gap in access to private revenue. So this really matters a lot because state appropriations, money from the state under austerity has really uh, precipitously declined over time. So in California and the UC system, only 10% of the overall revenue comes from the state. It's really a tiny amount. Um, So even if you distribute a relatively tiny amount pretty equally, um, you're still going to see a lot of disparity because the rest of the funding is coming in from private revenue sources. And so when I talk about private revenue, I mean things like tuition, particularly charging more for non-resident students. I mean philanthropy, I mean alumni giving, I mean corporate partnerships, all of these things. Um, UC Merced and UC Riverside have very limited access to. And that is also true for schools that have student populations that look similar to those students. These schools are, Riverside and Merced are almost entirely dependent on the state funds that they receive. They have tiny, almost non-existent non-resident student populations. So they're not getting that extra money. A lot of times campuses will charge two to three times as much for a non-resident student um, and that revenue comes in, but not at these schools. Uh, Other UC campuses are about a quarter non-resident and these students bring in a substantial amount of funding. UCR and UCM do not have a regular routine million dollar donor pipeline. Uh, In fact, in recent years, Merced's foundation has received less than 1% of the private support That Berkeley's foundation takes in during a given year, also auxiliary services, um, you know, selling of uh, jerseys, t-shirts, campus markets, at other schools that bring in those things tend to bring in money, but auxiliary services often drain um, coffers at Mm -hmm. UC Riverside and UC Riverside. Mm And so these schools serve as sort of a a window into what is happening across the country. Uh, The pattern I described is not just restricted to the UC system or California. University wealth is nationally concentrated at schools that serve very few numbers of marginalized students. Um, We've seen recently some data on this. Um, There's some work showing that Universities that serve 40% or more Latinx students actually receive something like $4,000 less per student um, in revenue when you put all these things together. There's also a gap for Black students um, that's not as large, but is substantial. And so these gaps in organizational resources by student race are quite persistent across
1: the country. Great. Well, I I know that's just you spent years, I assume, writing a a very long book. That's just the the tip of the iceberg. But before we get much further, you uh, explore very directly and very explicitly what it means to be white and studying race and racism, which I really appreciated. Uh, Could you share a little bit more with us about what you learned in that process and maybe what you've learned since?
0: Yeah, sure, it was really important to us um, that we had this conversation and that um, whenever we talk about the book, it's often one of the first things that we mention. Um, We were very aware going into this that we're both white um, and that this posed um, what we felt like the single biggest challenge of the book. Um, We knew we had to think very carefully and intentionally about our whiteness We had a lot of conversations where we became convinced that white scholars should write about race in the academy and that really the work of changing racist structures shouldn't just be shouldered by our colleagues of color. Mm -hmm. Um, White scholars kind of move through their careers profiting from the ability to move through universities with the privilege of basically never thinking about the racial dynamics of the environments in which we work. We did not want to continue supporting that inequity. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we were really aware that well-intentioned white people can do a lot of harm Mm -hmm. while they're attempting to support communities of color. Mm -hmm. So we recognize that our whiteness gives us a platform to make bold claims about the academy that aren't gonna be diminished as research or too political. And it's a platform that's been historically denied to a lot of uh, Black, Latinx, Asian, Indigenous scholars, as well as those from other marginalized groups. So we understood from the outset that we could misstep by attempting to speak for instead of um, and about these groups, but we made efforts at every stage to reduce the harm that we might cause. Um, and we felt kind of that the place we could really make an intervention where we could do the most work and the least harm. Um, and leverage our positionality was in understanding how the organizational structure of university campuses um, and higher education in the U.S. is both racially stratified and sends different amounts of
1: resources to students of color. Yeah, I love the both and of that, right? Uh, There's a history of well-intentioned harm, and where's our obligation to uh, get in the game here a little bit? Kelly, would you like to add anything to that?
2: Yeah, I would. I would like to um, just add that there are consequences, too, for the type of research and the way the research gets done. And I think that the the knowledge of the organization that we're able to elicit, not just in terms of race, but also in terms of gender. Um, you know, for instance, uh, there were cases uh, where Laura and I were treated differently um, in the same setting by the same people where I was deferred to Um, despite the fact that I had um, a much lower status than she did, um, that uh, we were sort of equal partners in this research. Um, And so um, gender and race really shaped the way that people spoke to us, the kinds of information I think that people were willing to give us. um, And it went both ways. I think that uh, white, powerful administrators were very much um, unarmed by a A white man interviewing them. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, our book set out to really try to tell a positive story. So we were there to celebrate the successes of these two schools. And I think that coming from someone like myself was very unarming and people spoke in ways that I don't know that they would have to a a Mm -hmm. scholar of color. Um, It's not certain, but it it, it definitely is possible. Um, And then in other cases, like for instance, when um, I was you know, interviewing uh, people who worked in the cultural centers, who were who were very much guarded, um, mm-hmm. but with a white man interviewing them about their work, when they have been subjected to decades of austerity and hostility from um, you know all corners. Right from the campus, from conservative students, from white students, and so um, there was a there was a um, understandable guardedness that had to be um, negotiated and and sort of worked out and, and and I think that in the end it did, but it's it's also likely that those interviews would have gone quite differently had they been um, the interviewer had been a person of color, and so you know we really Laura laid out our our motivations very well and, and I think then we also had to work through what the implications were for our findings. Um, right. And so we tried to do that. And it's always, um, I think, important to sort of really sort of keep that at the forefront. Um, I'll just give one more example. Uh, and this is really because uh, cultural diversity programming has become so ubiquitous across mm-hmm. the higher ed landscape. Um, and I participated in, in diversity programming, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, as, a, as a participant observer, to to get a sense of what was going on. And the people running the program were were just great. I mean, they were doing such awesome work with the resources and the constraints that they faced. Um, But you could tell that the cultural diversity programming was very much oriented towards marginalized groups, right? So that the questions and the activities put a person, put me, as a, as a as a white man, a middle class white man for that for that matter, um, in a position where it was it, the questions were not directed at me but rather towards um, mm-hmm. people who are marginalized within the university mm-hmm. system,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and so in a way it it reinforced the fact that whiteness, masculinity, um, class are are really. Um, these sort of invisible categories, right? right? And so it shaped very much um, how uh, the work was done and, and really um, I think the, the kinds of outcomes um, that we were able to observe. Um, but uh, I think it was, it was really important for us to right. put that front and center.
1: Yeah. Well, I really appreciate it. I think we can talk about being transparent, but I I think the two of you have gone well beyond being transparent and really naming it, being explicit and being direct about it, not only in a significant portion of the book where you talk about it, but also throughout and naming that. So I I really appreciate it. I think it's a great model in many ways for others who want to pursue things like this.
0: Uh, A lot of the work um, that we were building on is from scholars of color whose work is often just ignored and not cited. And so we did a lot of trying to um, pay homage to these people whose work um, was right there um, that people should be reading and that education scholars are not reading um, or that basically anyone outside of a small group of race scholars or critical race scholars, small but growing group are not paying attention to. And so we, you know, to whatever credit we're given, I think the real credit goes to these, these scholars that um, we pointed out again and again.
1: Yeah, it was, it was really noticeable to me, the foundation that you were building on and the credit you're giving and the references and the citations um, throughout. Um, two themes, you talked about some bold claims that you were able to make, two themes that you highlight seem to be really showing up more than ever across higher education. Uh, our colleague, Kevin McClure, keeps naming them and giving the two of you credit for it. Um, but the two things that really jumped out are what you call austerity administration and tolerable suboptimization. optimization You have a, a great way of being provocative and also technically accurate. So help us understand these patterns for those who are not familiar. I, I think Kelly, you're going to start us here talking about austerity administration.
2: Yeah, austerity administration uh, is is great. It's I mean, it's incredibly frustrating to witness, right? And, and yeah, we've all felt it, but we don't know what it is exactly. <laughs> That's right. And, and austerity administration is, I think, at, at, at base, a belief that there are no other ways to run the university other than through austerity, which means that um, public funding is simply not an option. We're not going to be able to go back to some old model where we get the state to really reinvest in what the university needs. And so this immediately constrains the way we can think about how to run a university, how to solve the problems that we're confronted with. Mm -hmm. And through this um, sort of narrowing of what is possible, you get this austerity um, logic that lead you in particular directions, right? And we talk about these particular directions. They're cutting costs. So you look everywhere you can to cut costs. You uh, take your sort of um, people who can really analyze every uh, cost function of the university and try to find places to um, reduce expenditures. You're taking the low hanging fruit. innovating with new ways of sort of reducing your, your overhead. So cost cutting becomes this, this uh, dominant mode of thinking about how to run the university. Um, you look to getting big, right? So you have to then think, well, okay, we can cut costs on the one hand, but then we also have to generate revenues on the other. And for campuses um, that don't have um, massive revenue streams from say donors or, or other, other places, what are you gonna do? You're gonna turn to students. Right, because tuition is um, one place that uh, there are a few strings attached so tuition is a wonderful place to go for, for for money it's very flexible and then you can scrape off the top from you can take it out of the teaching budgets and you can throw it into the infrastructure into the research into the amenities that make a campus um, desirable and, and sort of uh, climb up the rankings right and so you're looking you're you're, you're beginning to approach administration through this austerity framework. Um, and so, you know, at UC Riverside, the, um, the financial picture wasn't the same as it was at Merced. I mean, it was perhaps a bit more um, solid. You know, we, we spoke to high level administrators who said, you know, we could continue along like this mm-hmm. and it's would we would be okay. Right? We don't need to kind of um, take these sort of drastic moves to try to um, raise a ton of revenue or cut a ton of costs. We could we could sort of just plod along and it would be fine. This wasn't the case at, at Merced. Merced had a very different set of um, sort of constraints and a different context. Um, but nonetheless, the the administration was still thinking in terms of austerity. And we compare this to the way that administrators in the past had thought about the university. I think this was a really instructive um, approach for us because you know, prior to um, this current crop of administrators, UC Riverside had um, administrators who had grown up in a period where public funding was really robust. And the model for this uh, was former Chancellor Ray Orbach. Um, Ray Orbach was a real transformational figure on the campus. Um, And he was there from uh, 1992 to 2002, I believe, was it, Laura, is that the exact dates?
0: 2002, 2003, but in the general,
2: that's in the general. It was the 90s, right? So Mm -hmm. austerity was there. There's no doubt about it. I mean, this was still uh, the period of austerity, um, but... Ray Orbach had grown up through the the sort of Sputnik moment. I mean, this is when he came of age, right? And he came of age during the Cold War University when money was just thrown at science and at campuses and at research universities. And when he became chancellor of UC Riverside, he said, look, this campus needs to grow. It's a UC campus. It needs to be world-class. Our model is Berkeley. Mm -hmm. UC For listeners who don't know, the UC system is a system of campuses that have uh, a formal equality, right? Mm -hmm. There's not a flagship uh, in the system and then campuses of of lower tiers, they're a formal equality, which means that everyone has to sort of um, be, are expected to achieve the same levels of um, scientific excellence, Mm -hmm. right? And um, the same sorts of, uh, expectations for students and outcomes and, and that. So there's a formal equality in the system. And so Ray Orbach used this formal equality and this belief that you could go out and you could get revenue from the state. So he organized a group of local businessmen and elites and sent them to the governor, Pete Wilson, the mm-hmm. governor at the time, a Republican governor, who's uh, you know not, not going to be, uh, I, I can't imagine was, was ex- entirely loose with the cash, but he Mm -hmm. would send this group and they would say, look, we're growing, we're bringing all these students in, we need money to do it. And they were able to get some money from the state and they built this university up from um, a place where it had really, it was, um, there was a lot of room to grow, we'll just Mm -hmm. say. And Mm -hmm. he really transformed the campus. Now the administrators in charge now came of age, Uh, in a much more um, sort of fully realized austerity system. They came into their administrative careers through the great recession. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that they no longer looked to the state as a viable source of revenue and really had internalized the idea that austerity was the common sense or the mm-hmm. natural order of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just shaped what was possible,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right? And in some ways, these things can be fine. Maybe there are, there is some uh, low hanging fruit. You could, you could make the university more efficient, sure. Um, but in other ways, they became very harmful uh, right. when everything looks like, a cost overrun, or everything needs to be costed. So, what do you do? Do you, how do you measure um, the cost benefit of an interaction between a student and a, and a faculty member? Or, you know, um, you, you try to sort of think of what a university does in all its complexity in these these narrow terms. And so, this right. is really what austerity admin. Uh, mm-hmm means. And
1: then that leads to tolerable sub-optimization. Both of these, I guess I understand, sort of within the frameworks, within the mindset of neoliberalism, right, where everything is commodified. Is that right? Uh, Laura, tell us a little bit more about tolerable sub-optimization. Again, I think we've all felt this. (laughs) Help us understand it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I real quick on your point of neoliberalism in the book, we talk about racial neoliberalism Mm. um, and the ways in which this idea, the neoliberal idea is that, you know, we you should earn your your goods in a competitive marketplace system pays very little attention to systems and structures of oppression that give people different abilities to do that. Different groups have different access to resources, right, to compete in a marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, and so under racial neoliberalism, what happens, you get a cycle where marginalized, racially marginalized students often end up sorted into, you know, universities that have lower rankings, and those universities, because of their student body composition, get Fewer resources, mm-hmm. and then those fewer resources translate into something like tolerable suboptimization mm-hmm. for students. That are there, um, you know, Kelly had mentioned the situation at, at Riverside and Merced was a little different. Riverside was um, had been built in the golden era, and it was starting to fall apart. So their problem was like ceilings that are broken and you know wires coming out of walls dirty floors filthy desks mm-hmm. like buildings that are literally crumbling mm-hmm. um at merced the you know this is a campus that was built in 2005 um and so it basically always existed under it's it's a neoliberal university it, it never existed in any other period of time and so uh, the, the policy of tolerable suboptimization, that word, is actually a word that was used by administrators during a, um, a webcast to the entire university, it was really targeted at staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and they argued that essential, like, because we don't have essential resources that we need, we're just going to have to accept a level of suboptimal operation. Um, and so this, you know, sort of became the policy. Um, people actually had t-shirts made for toler- tolerable suboptimization. Um, you know, the, the message from administration was, was really difficult for staff to hear because after saying, you know, we're gonna have to move our operations to a sub-optimal level, they then say, but we, you know, we absolutely, a poor underperformance. So they kind of put staff in a catch 22, like what do you, what is okay, suboptimal, you know, level mm-hmm. and a lot of these staff members, you know, to get into these professions, you know, and the people listening to this podcast, be, these are deeply committed people who are not getting mm-hmm. like highly financial, you know, highly compensated for the work that they're doing. Um,
1: and, so, and being asked to do le- do more with, with less yes. constantly
0: at every turn, right? And so we spent time looking at um, advising mental health and cultural programming um, at UC Merced, all of which are quite far from sufficient despite the excellent employees um, Mm -hmm. who are doing incredible work under these conditions. Um, Just to give you a sense of how how burdened they are, um, student access to academic advisors Um, in the School of Social Sciences, Arts and Humanities at Merced where I work. The caseload for an academic advisor was 740 students per advisor during our study, Mm -hmm. which is two and a half times the national average for Mm -hmm. a public four-year university and seven times the average of a private ba granting institution. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mental health services were severely overloaded with high caseloads. There were wait times of a month or more this problem was sort of compounded by being in a healthcare desert, such that mm-hmm. the only place for students to get skilled in long-term support was on campus. Um, the workers were so stressed that one of them said to me that working um, for the DOJ and the local prisons um, seemed more compelling because the pay was better and the job was less stressful.
2: Mm-hmm. It was,
0: mm-hmm. How bad it got. Mm-hmm. And our cultural programming um, effectively consisted of one social justice coordinator who, you know, at that time there were no centers on campus. This person had to coordinate all of social justice for an Mm -hmm. entire campus. So these, you know, this is what tolerable sub-optimization looks like. It's happening around the country, but it's happening more heavily on campuses that have higher concentrations of marginalized students. Right. Sometimes, when we present this research at a more affluent university, people are like, oh, yeah, that's here too. And I'm like, I don't think you understand the level. We're talking mm-hmm. about degrees
2: mm-hmm. of
0: tolerable suboptimization. And it's much worse where you have more marginalized populations.
1: Right. And it's the, the confounding of all of these factors, right? You know, I think there's a lot of public institutions that would love to get 10% of their funding from the state. That sounds (laughs) robust and luxurious, but they don't have some of these other confounding factors of very little uh, alumni contributions. They don't, uh, there's no medical center that's generating a lot of revenue. There's all of these things that sort um, sort of becomes this flywheel. This thing leads to this thing, leads to this thing, leads to this thing, and they all sort of move in this direction. Um, I really appreciate this. I think it gives names to a lot of things we're experiencing and a lot of things we're, we're seeing more. I mean, I'm just thinking about um, there's a, a piece this week about uh, Hispanically serving institutions and people who are doing great jobs with that and people who are giving lip service to that. Um, I'm thinking about I think it's UCSB that's having this controversy over this residence hall that's being built with no windows and things because a donor is willing to contribute to it. That's part of it. Um, and we're talking about the attacks on, on uh, CRT. We're talking about the Chancellor of Nebraska being attacked by re- legislators because they have a diversity plan. Um, so some, some of these things that are about these two campuses, right, These are we're seeing these uh, broadly. Um, the, the one more thing that I want to uh, get into before we have to wrap up is you talk about uh, student labor and centers of support and marketing diversity. Tell us a little bit more about this.
0: Yeah, so our, you know our, we argue that austerity um, is really linked often to what we call diversity regime. Um, diversity regimes are sort of affordable solutions to race that are often consistent with anti-affirmative action frameworks because they celebrate all kinds of difference mm-hmm. together at the low cost of one center or one staff member. Um, At UC Merced, we really saw that play out, right? There was um, one cultural logic addressing race. It was a diversity regime where um, everyone had to be given equal resources, which meant that nobody got much of anything. Mm. Um, There was one cultural center. The problem with this approach is that diversity is a colorblind ideology, it tends to obscure race as a very central system of oppression, by focusing on individual identities so great you like you know you you ride in the rodeo wonderful you like to skateboard great. Oh, you happen to be from a working class family wonderful you're black. So it puts all of these things sort of on the same um, page and it doesn't devote a systematic amount of resources to groups that have historically been excluded over and over and over again, right? So Merced um, really had this logic that limited um, the kind of university supports. So what what that meant was that students and staff and faculty who don't play as large a role in this chapter, but in some of our other work do, they pick it up. They do the compensatory work um, we call it racialized equity labor. Labor to make a place comfortable, welcoming, supportive of marginalized groups. And when the university doesn't provide it, the students do, the staff do, and the faculty do, and it's uncompensated labor for which they're not getting paid um, and it is quite draining. Um, it takes a lot out of the folks who are doing this. In contrast, at Riverside, we saw a really large network of cultural centers that were group- based cultural centers, um, serving marginalized groups that worked together um, and worked separately. you know they did sort of both types of work. And it didn't take away racialized equity labor. there were still students were still doing it, but because the centers were promoting racial equity through the empowerment and supportive of groups and providing resources for, Um, student organizations, they were providing resources for uh, Black graduation, Um, the students could do other types of racialized equity labor. They weren't always having to respond in the moment to a crisis, but they could be forward thinking. So they had a town hall, for example, when they um, brought the police um, to talk about policing and race, and this wasn't the result of any particular bad thing that happened on campus. They were being proactive. Right. it allowed for that right so you have to have institutionally supported infrastructure with deep community ties to allow that kind of student and staff and faculty labor to happen and to take some of the burden off those right.
1: folks well and i think under that model too then the the student and faculty and staff they're they're doing that connected to a bigger idea so it's exactly. better integrated where at the uc merced model Um, they're just doing it as one-offs. Like, I think I should do this and I think I should be doing this and not interconnected. Um, And then Kelly, tell us about marketing diversity.
2: Yeah, marketing diversity was something that we um, were building off of the work of of our uh, colleagues like Amy Binder and Lauren Rivera, who had looked at the way that elite campuses like Harvard's and Stanford's and others funnel students into elite careers. Um, And this sort of career function is is, is a huge part of what, you know, a university is supposed to be doing it, you know, for better or worse. uh, Mm -hmm. It's moving students into the workforce. And what you have on a campus when you have um, a reputation as a campus that is diverse, um, that it is producing a kind of um, what at Riverside and I think what everywhere now is, is sort of trying to call as inclusive excellence. So you've got a very diverse, but also a really excellent student body. And you have a demand on the um, on the corporate side to diversify, to create that diversity within the corporate ranks as well. And so there's an opportunity for a, a kind of marriage there, right, mm-hmm. to market this diversity that universities are producing for these um, corporate positions, for these, these um, roles in the private sector. And so universities forge these partnerships with um, different uh, industries and different companies, uh, and they um, help students move into these positions. And at UC Riverside, this is very clear, it's done um, in a very explicit way where um, former graduates that were participants of these graduate of these cultural centers at UC Riverside, have moved in and we look at the case of Pepsi company Mm -hmm. and they had moved into these managerial roles at Pepsi and they had come back to Riverside to help forge this relationship between UC Riverside and Pepsi. And it was very much um, explicitly grounded in the diversity of the campus and the role that the cultural centers do, right? Um, But, you know, what we found was that this is a sort of a double-edged sword. So they are, these are good jobs, right? They're, they're decent, they're, they're managerial positions. Um, but what we learned from them is that Pepsi is not forming these relationships with USC. It's not forming these relationships with UCLA, at least not this part of the company, right? right? right. This part of the company, which is managing the warehouses, it's managing the distribution throughout Los Angeles, right? they're turning to UC Riverside because they believe that UC Riverside graduates will be grateful for those positions Mm. that are in that middle management, those good, but certainly not at the top of the organization positions. Whereas other schools are marketing their Supreme Court justices. Exactly, or to the sort of corporate ladder at financial firms and these these other companies. So what they're doing is they're saying, these graduates are going to be great because they'll be able to connect with the communities of color mm-hmm. where they will be working with the communities in the warehouses, and then they'll be going into the community and, and helping to um, forge relationships, develop new products and things because of their supposed cultural knowledge, right? And so well, it does- it just have, leads to more racial segregation. Precisely. And so we looked at the ways that that is um, both benefiting these students, but also um can be harmful
1: yeah
0: And more racialized equity labor for these folks when they end up in their corporations they start running the employee resource groups for right. the black people who are working there as well so right. they end up doing uncompensated labor for the corporations
1: just and like the corporation do. doesn't have to change because these folks are being exactly. healthy yeah uh well uh as we knew we would we're running out of time uh so we need to wrap up this podcast is called student affairs now and we always like to end with this question what are you thinking troubling or pondering now this might be something because of this conversation or just what's going on in the world what's really with you now and also if you want uh share where folks uh, can connect with you so kelly you want to go first sure yeah so
2: um lauren i actually just uh Wrote a piece that'll be, I think it's going to be out in, in Change Magazine uh, soon. And this looks at the relationship between democracy um, and uh, what's going on in the new university. And so I think, you know, we're, I, I was very interested in this question of how austerity really um, has a, a dampening effect on the democratic possibility for universities. Um, This is part of, I think, a a broader trajectory of my own work, which is going towards really um, growing out of this austerity logic in the way that um, possibilities really become uh, narrowed um, by the the sort of political economic structures. So this is um, not just in terms of what we think we can do uh, financially, but in terms of uh, democracy, um, what's acceptable, Ways of, of sort of living democratic lives, and so this is a, an important direction, uh, I think, for my work.
1: I love it. I, you're taking on university administration, racial segregation, justice, and now just throw in democracy, right? Just, so you're taking on all the big challenges. I love it. Thank you, Kelly.
2: Yeah, um, and you can you can find me at
1: uh I've got a Twitter uh, handle. It's Kelly
2: J Nielsen,
1: all one word.
2: So awesome. you can find me there. Yeah,
1: great. Laura, how about you? What are you what's uh, with you now, and where might we connect with you?
0: I am knee deep in contracts with uh, (laughs) OPMs who are these private providers, um, often for our public universities that um, we're outsourcing our online education to um, on that point of growing big. A lot of times Mm. campuses are doing that online um, and they're not really providing it, they're purchasing it. Um, So I'm knee deep in those contracts. Mm-hmm. I um I can not be reached on Twitter because I've been avoiding it. Um and it seems too yeah, too much working
1: for you, I guess.
0: Yeah, but you can you can reach me on email. Um it's lhamilton2 at ucmerced.edu.
1: Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much. This has been uh, terrific. Congratulations on the book. It's kind of new. Does it feel it probably feels very ancient to you? You're on all this projects. <laughs> yes, it's <laughs> new. you. Yeah. Yes. Awesome. Congratulations on the book. And thanks so much for taking time to join us on Student Affairs Now. I want to thank our sponsors for today's episode, uh, Leadership and EverFi. Leadership partners with colleges and universities to create transformational leadership experiences, both virtual and in-person for students and professionals, with a focus on creating a more just, caring, and thriving world. Leadership offers engaging learning experiences on courageous dialogue, integrity, equity, resilience, and community building. To find out more, please visit leadershape.org slash virtual programs or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And EverFi, for over 20 years, EverFi has been the trusted partner for 1,500 colleges and universities. With efficacy studies behind their courses, you will have confidence that you're using the standard of care for student safety and well-being with the results to prove it. Transform the future of your institution and the community you serve. Learn more at everfi.com slash studentaffairsnow. Huge shout out to Nat Ambrosi, the production assistant of the podcast, who does all the behind the scenes work to make the three of us look and sound good. And if you're listening today and not already receiving our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at studentaffairsnow.com. Scroll to the bottom of the homepage to add your email to our MailChimp list. You'll get the latest and greatest every Wednesday morning. I'm Keith Edwards, your host. Thanks again to the fabulous guest today and to everyone who is watching and listening. Make it a great week, all. Thank you both.